We are going to continue our series in the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 2. So I invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn there with me, Colossians chapter 2. If you don't have one, the the words should be up on the screen here uh, in just a moment. But it is, as always, just an honor uh, to open God's word together. We believe it is uh, without error. It is authoritative and it is sufficient. And so we submit to his words today. Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, these are the words of the true and living God. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray. Father, we look to you this morning so grateful that you are a God who has revealed yourself to us in your word and in your son. We pray that as we read your words, as we look at them together, that you would open our eyes, that you would open our ears. God, that you would help us by your grace and empowered by your spirit to walk according to your ways. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, there is so much that could be said uh, in this brief passage. There is so much that is crammed into these few verses. It's been said that the gospel is like a diamond, right? one beautiful object with many different facets and angles. And you can look at it from each of those angles and each one will refract its beauty in a different way. But it's one core truth. Right? It is one solid object. And in this passage, I mean, Paul lists kind of rapid fire. He points out a bunch of those, the facets of that diamond in this passage. And so I know I'm, I'm not going to be able to do it justice in the short time that we have, uh, but we're going we're gonna to give it a shot. So here we have, as we've talked about already, Paul and Timothy writing to a young church, a group of Christians new to the faith that, as he said, they never had the opportunity to visit them personally, though he wants to. They had heard about their faith from a close friend and a partner in the ministry. He had heard about what was happening in Colossae and how they were growing in the faith. And his desire, as he expressed in chapter 1, was a longing to see them continue in this faith, to be stable and steadfast, to not shift from the hope that they have in the gospel. His stated purpose for his ministry, Paul says, is to proclaim Christ in two ways, he says at the end of chapter 1, by warning which is what we have this morning in this passage, and by teaching 
everyone so that it would bring about the purpose of their maturity in Christ. And so chapter one and into chapter two, they write about the supremacy and the uniqueness of Jesus, that he is above all, that there is no one like him. And then here we see the shift happen in chapter two, down in verse six, which Jordan talked about last week, starting with the word therefore, where he takes all that he has talked about in regards to Jesus and his supremacy, all that he has taught about Christ and now applies it here to them. First, right, the first exhortation, which we discussed last week, was as you receive Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk in him, right? So keep going with this faith. But then the second exhortation, which we'll unpack this morning, starts there in verse eight. See to it that no one takes you captive. And what he's gonna go on to say is basically this, don't fall for anything other than Jesus because he is all you need. Right? That's the warning that he lays out for them. Don't fall for anything other than Jesus because he is all you need. And so he begins with this warning. Don't fall for anything other than Jesus. See to it, verse eight, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Right? He says that he struggled for them, that he cares about them. He longs to see them continue walking in Christ. And so far, they're doing really well. This is not a messed up church. This is not a divided group of people. This is not a rebellious group that he's writing to, to correct. Right? He's thrilled. He praises what he's seen, what he's heard has gone on there, their faith and how they're walking with the Lord. And so he exhorts them to continue, keep going, right? and watch out. Be careful. Right, this is similar to, to, a, to a parental warning where at times parents feel the need to point out the danger right, or the traps that may lie ahead. As we try to prepare our children to go out into the world and to do it in such a way that it honors God with their decisions, with their relationships, with their choices, we want to prepare kids to honor him in every way, right? The majority of the time, that message from parents should be positive, it should be reinforcing the truth, but sometimes we feel the need to point out obstacles that we know lie ahead, dangers that we know they're going to encounter, sometimes because of things we've experienced in our own lives, some because of, some because of the mistakes we've made or the pain we've experienced or things we've gone through. We don't want them to have to experience the same thing, and so we feel the need to point out traps that lie ahead. And that's an important part of their role. I remember when, when I finally got my license and I was so excited to be able to drive in the car without my parents and they let me drive my younger sister right, and myself to church one morning, just the two of us. I still remember that feeling of freedom and excitement. Of course, as we're walking out the door to go to the car, right, the last thing my mother says to us, two words, be careful. Right? And every time after that, that we left the house, as we're walking out the door, the same two words, be careful. And of course, it became a joke and we made fun of her, sure mom, to the point where by the time we graduated, she was saying, bye kids, drive fast, take chances. Right, because she knew we would mock her if she said, be careful. And so the warning here is one of be careful. You're doing great. You're on the right path, keep going, but be careful. See to it that no one takes you captive. I remember being a little kid and in school, elementary school, probably first, second grade, and every year, the police officer would come into our class, 
and they would show the video right, about stranger danger. Right? And I remember going home after watching those videos, just paralyzed with fear and afraid that that was going to happen to me to the point where like, one of my chores as a kid was taking out the garbage. So garbage night every week after that would happen every year on a consistent basis and we'd watch those videos, garbage night would come the next week and there I am at the, at the garage with the garbage can, sprint as fast as I could down to the road, drop the garbage can, run back as fast as I could, right? Because I was afraid that someone was going to take me captive. Now the goal of this passage, it is not for us to live in fear, but it is to acknowledge that there is a threat to our faith. And that's how we should approach warnings like this in scripture. Not like young me who lived in fear of being taken captive. Not like teenage me who laughed it off when his mother said, be careful. But we should acknowledge the possibility of being taken captive or falling for something other than Christ or adding to our faith something other than Christ. And then the other response as we dive into this that I want us to avoid is applying this to somebody else first. Right? That's a danger we have any time where we come across a warning or a command before we apply it in our own lives and let it bear fruit right? and then pass it on to others. We're so eager to think of those for whom this passage really applies. Right? But this says, see to it that no one takes you captive. Right? So there may be others in your life who need to hear this, but before your mind goes to your older child who's begun to wander from the faith, or your parent who's not walking with the Lord, or your Facebook friend who's posting things constantly right, that don't line up with the gospel. Before you go to the application that's necessary for their lives, right, we are to take these warnings seriously for our own faith. See to it that no one takes you captive. and Acknowledge the possibility and the threat of falling for something other than Christ. So what is this threat? He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by what? Philosophy and empty deceit. That's according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits or principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Now it seems based on what we see further down in this chapter that their concern for the Colossian believers was Judaism as he goes on to talk about right, food and drink and festivals and Sabbath, right, Jewish laws and traditions handed down by man, not given by God, that were necessary in order to be accepted by him. His concern was that they would add on to the gospel, add on to faith in Christ, right, obedience to Jewish laws and regulations and traditions that they felt were necessary in order to be a follower of God. So that's, I think, what is in mind as he's writing to the Colossian believers, that they would take aspects of Judaism and blend them with their faith. And those things, he says, are based on human tradition. Right? They're not God-given. They don't originate with him. They originate with man. And they're based on the elemental principles or spirits of this world, they're not tethered to the eternal truths of Scripture. But the biggest issue, he says, is that they are not according to Christ. That he alone must be the foundation. The complete foundation. Not just the first layer of the foundation, 
right? Not just one block in the foundation, but you can't add anything else to the work that he has done. And while Judaism may not be a threat for us, the reality is we do struggle. Our default position oftentimes is a works-based righteousness that there's something else we must do in order to please God. That yes, I've trusted in Christ, but it's not quite enough. Right? He did his best, but now I need to do the rest. Even if it's just, you know, he did 99% of what was necessary, but I've got to finish this deal. I've now got to follow through. And so we struggle at times with a works-based righteousness. We struggle at times with the appeal of new ideas. Right? That's what philosophy literally means, the love of wisdom. We struggle at times with losing our first love. If you've been in the church for a while, Maybe you, were, you came to faith as a young child and the reality is it's easy to become a little bit numb to the glory of the gospel. And there's something that may be appealing about new ideas, different ideas, new interpretations where they become more appealing than ancient truth. Or maybe you've been a Christian for a little while but you sense that excitement starting to wear off a little bit and you want that rush of something new. It's sad when we think about it how easily we lose our first love and we move on to other things and we see in the old testament it takes the israelites two minutes right to make a golden calf out of their own jewelry and then say this is the god who saved us right they had just seen him work mightily to rescue them from slavery in egypt defeat mighty pharaoh right part the red sea And now they're worshiping a golden calf and saying, this is the God who saved us, right? It took them no time at all. Or if you look at the book of Kings, God fights for his people over and over again, and yet those kings, what did they do? They grab onto the gods of the other lands, right? That God has defeated and said, these are now our gods after he has fought for them. Or maybe you go off to college and you think, I'll see what else there is besides Jesus. Or maybe you're an older saint and the reality is you, it's easy to get lazy, it's easy to get comfortable and sail off into retirement. Or maybe you're a newer believer and it's tempting to want to hang on to relationships right, of our past or things of this world. The reality is we are vulnerable to being taken captive by philosophy, by love of wisdom, and by empty deceit, things that that look good on the surface but really have no substance to them. And it doesn't mean that we can't seek to understand the philosophies of this world and even appreciate things about them that are good and true. It doesn't mean that we can't seek to understand human tradition, right, and even seek to implement some things that are true and valuable. But don't be taken captive. The only thing, the only one we should freely give our hearts, our minds, our lives entirely to without question, with complete devotion, is Jesus. So don't fall for anything else. Why? What's the solution? As we'll see in verse 9 and following, because Jesus is all you need. He says four in verse nine, here's the reason why, right? And he's gonna go on to lay out who Jesus is and what he's done, that there may be something true, there may be something useful, there may be something good in some of the philosophies and traditions of this world, but they, at the end of the day, are empty and incomplete because Jesus alone can accomplish what he's about to lay out. 
He's all you need. And so I'm just going to name a bunch of these things as he goes through them pretty rapidly. Number one, he points out that in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. You won't find any new understanding of who God is apart from Jesus Christ. How do we know that? Because in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. There is nothing lacking in Jesus that you need to find somewhere else and then add on to your faith or try to integrate into your faith. Right? If you know Jesus Christ, the, the Son of God, our Savior, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells, there is nothing lacking. There's nothing you can find about God, no path, no understanding, no truth that you will come to grasp about God apart from who Jesus is. In him is the whole fullness of deity. And he says, and you have been filled with him. Right? If you say, I feel like, just, I feel like I'm missing something. In, right, you have been filled with with him. To those who are searching, right, hear this. I mean, to those who've grown up with Jesus and decided that you found some other good things that you can just add on top of that faith, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells, and you have been filled with him. And then he says, and he is the head of all rule and authority. Anything other than Christ is not as powerful as Christ. He is the head of all rule and all authority. And you say, well, I heard somebody share how this book really helped them or this way of thinking was so liberating. Right? We're drawn to power and influence, anything that would promise us results. But he is the head of all rule and authority. Verse 11 and following, he's gonna cram into a few verses right, the glory of what God has accomplished for us through Christ. How all of that applies to us, he says, in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Again, there's so much there that we can't unpack. But what he's saying is you've been brought from death to life as symbolized in your baptism. So he's writing again to new believers who have been baptized and he's saying in that baptism what's symbolized there is that you've been brought from death to life and so you have experienced the powerful working of God in that. And he talks about circumcision which was the symbol under the old covenant that God gave to his people that they were set apart and belonged to him. Now under the new covenant baptism is that symbol. And so he's writing to them that you've been baptized, which is a symbol now of your union with Christ, that you were buried with him, which why we go down into the water. It's a symbol of being buried with him and then being raised to new life as you come up out of the water by the powerful working of God. Not by the act of baptism itself, that's not where the power is, right? But by the powerful working of God, he writes. That there is no greater power in this world that you can find. If you're searching for something other than Jesus, or if you feel as though it's a little bit incomplete, there is no greater power that you can find than what Jesus Christ has accomplished. God raising him from the dead and then bringing us to life with him. How powerful? 
Well, he says in verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. The reality is other philosophies or other religions may seek to make you feel better about who you are, about yourself, or be the best version of you, but they're absolutely powerless when it comes to doing anything about your past, about what we've done, about our rebellion against God. They don't actually have a solution for those things. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's what the Pharisees say as Jesus claims to forgive sins. They become furious with Jesus and say, who can forgive sins but God alone? And the point is exactly, only Jesus, who is God, can forgive our sins. And so to the believers who have been baptized, he's writing, why would you be taken captive by anything else when God has performed an absolute miracle in your life bringing you from death to life, forgiving all of your trespasses, everything you've done in the past, everything you're ashamed of, everything you feel guilty, everything that brings you condemnation, all of that, he has forgiven. He's dealt with all the wrong that you've done. He's not just telling you, let's be the best version of you. No, he's dealing with all the garbage from your past and has forgiven all of that. That's the miracle that he's performed in bringing you from death to life. And then he's going to touch on two more things. That, and what we're going to see is he takes care of right, fully that problem within us, our own sin, and he takes care of the problem around us, rulers and authorities or the enemies in this world. He says he canceled, verse 14, canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. For the Colossians, it was Judaism. For us, it's any system of good works that says you need to do more. You need to do more. You need to do a little bit more in order to be made right with God. Modern philosophies lie to you and say you don't, in fact, owe any debt. You're basically good. You don't owe any debt to God. Don't worry about that. And sin has become like a four-letter word. But Jesus does much better than that. He acknowledges the reality of our own sinfulness and he has canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands and nailed it to the cross. And then he says in verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He not only took care of the problem within you, he took care of the threat around you Right? The enemies of Satan who would attack and tempt and seek to destroy all that God has done. Because as they thought, right, they were embarrassing him and shaming him by nailing him to the cross. That was actually a display of power as God then raised him from the dead and he triumphed over sin and death and Satan. And so he's defeated for you your two greatest enemies, your own sin and the armies of Satan. Tell me anything that can accomplish that for you. Jesus didn't come to make you better. That was the goal of Judaism, to get things cleaned up on the outside. 
And that's the goal of other religions. He didn't come to make you better. He came to make you alive. To bring you from death to life. And notice the finality of the language here. Sins forgiven, all of them. Debt canceled. Legal demands nailed to the cross. Enemies shamed and defeated. It is language of finality. It is finished. It is done. And so if you're not captivated by who he is and all that he has done, then you're at great risk of being taken captive. So he says, see to it. Be careful. How? Not by living in fear. And certainly don't begin by warning everybody else. But start with you. See to it that no one takes you captive. By dwelling, meditating upon who Jesus is and all that he has done as it's laid out in these verses. So he says, keep going. He writes to them, keep walking in that faith, rooted and established. And along the way, don't fall for anything other than Jesus because he is all you need. Just think about what he's done. Just think about where you were dead to sin and made alive. And where you stand now, debt paid, demands nailed to the cross, sins forgiven. All of that was by the powerful working of God. You won't find anything greater. And so don't fall for anything other than Jesus because he is all you need. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We pray that your spirit would continue to bring it to our minds this day, this week, would cause us, as your spirit does, to behold the glory of who Jesus is, to bring glory and honor to him that we would continue to see just how great he is compared to anything else that we may be tempted to give our hearts and our minds to. And we long to be taken captive only by you. Because we know that in you is life, is safety, is security, is all that we need. In you is an eternal inheritance that will never fade. And so God, we pray that you would protect us, that you would keep us from wandering. Keep our eyes fixed upon you. That as we walk in this world, in faith, trusting in you, that you would keep us, your people, from following false gods, from seeking other things, from being taken captive. And God, we rejoice together just as we reflect upon these words, as we think about all that Christ has done. Just fill our hearts with gratitude and thanksgiving that it would overflow into our praises this morning. In Jesus' name.